Well, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I want to uh, open up today by just looking at um, our text. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke uh, chapter 18. I usually read the entire text, and I decided today I was just going to uh, deal with it as we got to each verse, but I just can't seem to break the tradition, so I want to uh, read the entire text before we uh, get into it. Uh, so here's the section of Scripture that we'll be dealing with. Just follow along uh, as I read. Luke eighteen eighteen. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said, the ruler said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, the rich ruler, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this ask, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all. Uh, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, as we continue in this series in the book of Luke that we've called Radical Love, if you were here last week, you might remember that we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and their respective prayers that they uh, prayed to God that represented different approaches uh, to God, different approaches to uh, trying to be right with God, to, to gain right standing uh, with God. And we noted last week that this really is the most important consideration in life. The most important question in all of life is, am I right with God? And we can distract ourselves. And we distract ourselves in a lot of different ways, but we can distract ourselves from this question with entertainment and, and triviality. We can try to push this question out of our minds, uh, but it's a question that most people prove unsuccessful at, at completely ignoring. We, we might be successful at a while, uh, for a while at distracting ourselves from it, uh, but then it always comes back. It's just, just a question that won't go away. Am I right with God? What does God require of me so that I'll be right uh, with him? So as we continue in Luke today, we, we essentially see this question again. It's just phrased a little differently, but it's the same question. It's in this text that we just read, uh, this interaction between Jesus and this man that's identified as, as a ruler. He is a rich ruler. Now, now, we don't know exactly what his position was. The word that's uh, translated ruler here was a fairly, is a fairly ge generic word uh, that, that kind of covers Roman and Jewish officials of all kind. 
And so we don't really know what his uh, official position was, but he was among the ruling classes, and the scripture makes it clear that he was wealthy. Verse 18 tells us that something very important was on this man's mind. A certain ruler asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so there it is, this all-important question. Worded a little bit differently from from what we uh, dealt with last week, but it's the same concern. How can I be right with God? If you've been inclined toward avoiding that question, or, or if you are one of the, I would say, few people who have never really given serious consideration to that question, you ought to. You, you really need to consider it. You see, if there is a God, and Scripture tells us unequivocally that there is, and if all of us here today stand condemned before God, and we don't like to think about this, but the Scripture tells us that we do. You think about even the, our favorite verse in the Bible, John 3.16, who, that, that tells us about the love of God. If you read just a little bit further than that, uh, it, it says that God did not come to condemn the world. And, and so if we read past 3.16 and get to that part about he didn't come to condemn the world, then we're, we're usually pretty excited, but we sometimes stop short. The, the scripture tells us that the reason he didn't come to condemn us is because we already stand condemned before God. Every single one of us here stand condemned before God. So there is a God. We stand condemned before him. And since this is true, it is a vitally important question for us to ask, how can I be right with God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response to the rich ruler's question, Jesus says in verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the rich ruler is very pleased because he is able to answer all of these things I've done since I was a boy. He's probably feeling pretty good about himself. He, he was probably feeling pretty good about his chances of, an, of inheriting eternal life. He's asked Jesus, what does it take? Jesus has referred him to the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and he says that he has kept all the commandments that Jesus listed. I think he stands in the place that many of us stand before God. And that is that we begin to inquire as to what God requires. And we find some of the expectations that God has of people. Good biblical things. Things that God tells us to do. Things like this rich ruler knew to do. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't, don't murder. Don't lie about people. Treat your parents with respect. Honor them. And you know, it basically sort of comes down to treat others the way you would want to be treated. Uh, that, that's sort of what these commandments that Jesus has, has listed amount to. And so like this rich young ruler, most of us think that we have done a decent job of treating others the way we'd like to be treated. Now, 
as I say a lot, we, we grade ourselves on a curve. We grade everybody else very harshly on that question, but we grade ourselves on a curve. And so we come out thinking that we've done pretty well. And so we start thinking that we are pretty good with God because we've been fairly decent to the rest of mankind. And so just like this rich ruler, we, we kind of think, hey, I've got this. I've got this covered. I'm a good person. I treat others right. And so God is pleased with me. But then Jesus hits him with verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Ah. Thought I was good. But I still lack one thing. And it's a pretty big thing. And you know, when we read this, if we aren't careful, we will fail to understand it correctly. And we'll hear Jesus saying something that he's not actually saying. Here is what we are tempted to hear from Jesus. We are tempted to hear him advocating a works-based salvation. Basically, you just need to be better if you want to be saved. You know, the man has said that he, he kept the commandments to not commit adultery, murder, steal, lie. He says that he's always honored his parents. And what we think Jesus is saying is, well, you still haven't done enough. So go do some more good, and then you'll be all right with me. Then you'll have eternal life if you just do more good. But that isn't what Jesus is doing here. You see, the commandments that the rich ruler had affirmed he had kept were the second section of the Ten Commandments that deal with man's relationship with man. But the first section of the Ten Commandments deal with man's relationship with God. What Jesus is saying here, I believe, is yes, you have been pretty good to your fellow man, but you still have a problem with God. You know, you can be a pretty decent person. You can treat others generally well. You can treat others really well and still have a problem between you and God still not have inherited eternal life. And this is totally contrary to our culture's belief that what God is looking for is for good boys and girls. So we look at Jesus' instruction to sell all and give to the poor and and think that Jesus is telling him of yet another way to do good to his fellow man. But that's not what Jesus is doing. What he is actually doing is this. He is testing the rich man on his adherence to the first section of the Ten Commandments, how he's relating to God, specifically whether or not he is obeying the first and greatest commandment, which is this one, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the the next command that comes in the Ten Commandments is this one, you shall not make an idol 
of anything. It's a slight paraphrase, but that's what it means. You, you shall not make an idol of anything. So Jesus is not advocating for a works-based salvation. Jesus is testing the man to see whether he has any other gods before the only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Jesus' teaching from Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus ends that little teaching with, you cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus teaches us in Scripture that money becomes a rival God that vies for our affection, our service, our worship. Jesus is not saying we're saved by doing good deeds. He's saying that in order to receive eternal life, a person can have no other God but the true God. No false gods, no counterfeit gods, no idols. The text tells us in verse 23, when he, the rich ruler, heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The call to sell everything was a test of which master this man served, which master this ruler served. Was he serving God or was he willing to serve God or was he determined to allow money to remain the God that he worshipped? Jesus is indicating that salvation, having eternal life, is a matter of who or what we trust And who or what we give allegiance to? Was the rich ruler trusting God or was he trusting his wealth? The scripture seems to uh, tell us that he was trusting in his wealth. And what about you? And what about me? Do we trust God or is our trust in money? Say, I don't have very much money. Doesn't matter. You can still be trusting in money. I mean, we live in an affluent time and place. Those of us with the most meager means are richer than 85% of the world's population. Are we trusting God? Are we trusting money? Uh, Allow me to suggest a little inventory you can do of your life to begin to answer this question. Ask a question. Does the work of God show up in your budget? Do you give of your money to the things of God? If God does not show up in your budget, in the use of your money, you might be trusting money rather than God. If God only occasionally shows up in your budget, you might be trusting God instead of money. If you only give God out of excess, when you happen to have a little extra lying around, you might be trusting God rather than money. If you say things like, I can't afford to give to the work of God. What did I say? Okay. You know what I meant? All right. Very good. Thank you for catching me. 
hate it when that happens. You might be, what did I say? Oh, yeah, that needs to be corrected. Yeah. That's very good. You were listening and you looked very serious during, during, during this point. <laughs> All right, I forget where I left off, but if you can't, uh, if you say things like, I can't afford to give to the work of God, you might be trusting money. Now I'm going to be fighting in my mind the rest of the sermon. So, the rich ruler trusted his money rather than God as he became sad and didn't take Jesus up on the invitation to follow. So was the rich young ruler's allegiance to God or money? It's the same answer. It was his money. He, he wanted eternal life, but to receive eternal life, his allegiance had to be to God. And he could not give allegiance to God. He could not give God what God demanded because Something else that he was not willing to yield had his allegiance. So what about you? Where is your allegiance? Is it truly God? Or could it be possible that your allegiance is to your money, to your pocketbook, to your stuff? In his book, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, and it's a book I would highly recommend to, to you. It's challenging I find, found myself, you know, not really liking some of what I was reading, but, but it's, a, it's a good book, a challenging book. Pastor David Platt makes a strong case for money being a false god that Christians regularly bow down and worship without seeing any problem with it or even giving any thought to it. It's just so much a part of, of our culture, the, the American dream. And I think this is often true. We allow our attitudes about money, our trust in money, our allegiance to money to largely go unexamined. Listen to Jesus' response when the rich ruler turns away from him. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those are sobering words in a culture that by any objective definition is rich. Sobering words. Now there are a lot of different thoughts on what this reference to the camel going through the eye of the needle is. Some of you may have a real strongly held a position on this. I would suggest you shouldn't have a real strongly held position on this. Uh, but, but here are some of the things people have uh, uh, suggested. Some claim that there was a very small gate in the wall around Jerusalem and that to, to get into the city, camels would have to sort of hunch down, sort of even like kind of crawl through the gate. And so that that's what Jesus was saying. Sounds very difficult. So, so that would make the point. Others say that really isn't the case, that instead this word camel should have been translated to something that, that meant something more like a large cable or a large rope. And that what Jesus was saying is that uh, it's more difficult for a rich person to enter heaven than it is to thread a needle with a thick rope. And still others say, no, none of that's right. What Jesus is saying is what he clearly said, is that it's harder for a camel 
to go through, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And, and so here's my view on it, on this pressing question of which it is that Jesus meant. I think it doesn't really matter because whichever he meant, here's what he meant. It's really hard for rich people to go to heaven. <laughs> so. Why is it that it's hard for rich people to go to heaven? Why is that? Because it is so easy to trust wealth instead. Because it, wealth so easily entices our allegiance. Because wealth so much seems to provide for us things that without our wealth, we would just have to trust in God for. I mean, if you think, and, and I recognize there may be some exception here, so you, you don't need to holler out if you are the exception. I understand there might be an exception or two here, but very few of us in this room, even those of us of the most modest means, have ever truly lacked for the most fundamental things that we need. I would venture to say that very few of us in this room have ever truly been hungry. I mean, okay, I know a lot of us are hungry after, you know, an hour and a half. So we say we're hungry, but I'm talking about truly being hungry. I can't say I've ever truly been hungry. We're, we're blessed. We're, we're wealthy. We're people who have hardships like this. Both of my cars are old. Two cars. Two cars. And our great hardship is they're old. And we've got them in a garage. I don't because my garage door doesn't work. So, so I actually really do have it bad. <laughs> but these are the kinds of difficulties. Now, I don't mean to suggest we don't have real difficulties because we do. But, but when it comes to, to money and things and possessions, we've got it pretty nice. We've got it pretty nice. Most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. You have it pretty nice. And the idea of how difficult it is for the rich to be saved was odd to the people of Jesus' day. Uh, and, and so they ask in verse 26, who then can be saved? It, it was odd because the rich were viewed as having God's favor. They, they saw wealth as a sign that you were in with God. But Jesus teaches that it's actually an obstacle to the kingdom of God. It's not a sign you're in, which by the way, much of the Christian church needs to hear that message and receive that message. As wealth and way too much of Christianity is still seen as a sign of being tight with God. But it's actually an obstacle to the kingdom. It's an obstacle because wealth can do so much for us that gives us the illusion that we don't need God. It's an obstacle because it can provide so many distractions to our relationship with God. I was privileged a number of years ago to meet a missionary uh, from India. Some of you who came with us from Eastside Vineyard may remember A. Stephen. I just found out recently that A. Stephen passed away, which I uh, was very uh, sad to hear. But um, 
uh, A. Stephen, wonderful missionary, uh, an Indian man who had planted, uh, I think, 300 churches uh, in the country of India. And he was uh, with Pastor John Moriarty, and I was privileged to have dinner with him. And somehow the question came up, is it more difficult to serve God in the United States of America, or is it more difficult to serve God in India? And A had spent a great deal of time in the United States, and he said, I can tell you, uh, absolutely, it is more difficult to serve God in the United States than it is in India. I think, how is that true? I mean, A, you've suffered rejection of your family, you've been persecuted, you've been beaten for the gospel. I've had it pretty nice and comfy. How is that possible? And he said, the two reasons he gave were this. He said, it's more difficult to live for God in the U.S. because of your affluence and because of the saturation of your culture with sexuality. He's right. He's right. Wealth can distract us. Wealth is an obstacle because it can enable a lot of sin. Now, you don't have to be wealthy to sin, but, but wealth enables, it can finance more sin. So Jesus taught that rather than wealth being a sign of being in with God, it actually put people at risk. It actually made it very difficult for people to enter God's kingdom. And this should concern us because we are affluent. And to this concern of who then can be saved, Jesus responded this way, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And that is good news to us. That is good news to us. It's really hard, impossible, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, but not for God. It's not impossible for God. And this is wonderful reassurance to us. us. Our culture may conspire against us entering the kingdom. Our affluence may conspire against us entering the kingdom serve as an obstacle to the kingdom, but none of these things are enough to keep us from the kingdom because what is impossible for men is possible with God. That should give us great relief and great joy. Jesus is not indicating salvation is a matter of earning it, but he is indicating it's a matter of who you trust and who you give allegiance to. He's not against money, but he is against money owning you. He is against money being your God. So he was testing the man. Let me share three closely related points that I think we receive from this interaction between Jesus and the rich ruler. To inherit eternal life, we must be willing to allow the things of earth to grow strangely Dim. How many of you have heard that song that has that line in it? it? It is just packed with truth. And I don't know if I'll remember this correctly, but I think it goes something like, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In calling the man to sell all, Jesus is asking... He is requiring that the man allow heaven 
to be his focus. That he turn his attention from the temporal to the eternal. That he stop living for the here and now and start living for the there and then. You know, Christians are fond, many of us are fond of of saying of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. I would actually submit to you today that the exact opposite problem is the greater problem we have in the church today. And that is that people, even Christians, are so earthly minded that they don't even give thought to heaven. I mean, it's even popular among Christian leaders to sort of look at heaven as an afterthought and say, ah, you know, we're just to focus on doing good here, whatever happens in the by and by or whatever. That's that's not the position the Bible takes. That's That's not what Jesus teaches us. He wants our focus to be heaven. If we're to inherit eternal life, earth has to lose its hold on us. Heaven has to become truly our home, the place we long for, the place of our affections, the place that we live for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian uh, uh, who struggled to live for Christ in the midst of uh, Nazi rule, and he wrote one of the great books of the 20th century, The Cost of Discipleship, And here's what he wrote, that every Christian experiences, quote, the call to abandon the attachments of this world. That's the call of Christ. You want eternal life, that's that's part of the deal. You abandon the attachments of this world. Things of earth must grow strangely dim. To inherit eternal life, we can't value anything more highly than we value God. Nothing, nothing, nothing can be more highly regarded in our hearts than God. Jesus required the rich ruler to sell all he had because he wanted to see whether or not the rich ruler valued God or money the most. And the answer was that he valued money the most. He became sad because he realized that he couldn't have God. He couldn't have eternal life unless God was valued more than his money. So what about you? What have you placed the highest value on in your life? And most Christians can give the right answer here. We say that we value God more than anything, but is that the reality of our lives? Is that the reality of our hearts? Is that the reality of our own relationship with money? For too many, the evidence suggests otherwise. To inherit eternal life, we must reject all false gods. We have to reject the worship of all false gods. And friends, I submit to you today that there is no lack of false gods. There are many Many false gods. Jesus' interaction with this particular ruler centered on his money, his wealth, because that was the false god of this man. That was the god that this man was trusting and giving allegiance to. And and many of us are doing the same. But this isn't the only false god. If money isn't your false god, perhaps something else is your false god. Well, what are some of the false gods that we serve? What are some of the false gods that Christians secretly serve? 
Wow. I might have covered that, Stan. You got to let me talk. <laughs> what are some of the things that we, in a misguided way, uh, place our trust in for happiness? What are some of the things that we give our allegiance to? Here are just a few for you to consider. Your career can be a false god. Alcohol can be a false god. Sex can be a false god. Entertainment can be a false god. Sports can be a false god. I think I'm going to stop on that one for a second, actually. Debating whether I should stop here or not. (laughs) Yes, I am. I'm going to stop here for a second. I have had some of you uh, come to me and and ask me my opinion on your children's participation in sports. And specifically, participation that takes you, your family, and your child away from church. And here's the answer that I have typically given. The answer that I I agree with. I, I ultimately believe it's a personal decision that you have to make between you and God. I don't think I can give you a real you know, real clear answer on it, except for this. You cannot do anything that communicates to your family and especially to your child that sports is more important than God. You have to put everything through that filter. How much of this can we do and it not communicate that this is more important to us than God. And so let me just kind of think through this with you a little bit. Uh, I will tell you that uh, over this fall, uh, I am going to miss a couple of Sundays because I have decided that I am going to take my two sons individually uh, to an NFL football game. And I've not been able to figure out a Monday night or a Thursday night game that would work. So I'm going to miss two services between now and Christmas uh, because I'm going to take my sons to a football game. I've put that through the the filter. I do not believe that that's going to communicate to them that football is more important to us than God. Let me tell you what I would not do. I would not buy season tickets to the Cincinnati Bengals knowing that I was going to need to take my kids out of church eight out of the next 16 weeks. I would not do that. Because that, to me, would communicate to them that football is more important than our going to church, than our worshiping God with our brothers and sisters. Now, the line may be slightly different for you. I'm not trying to tell you where the line is exactly. I'm, I'm trying to give some some possible suggestions as to where the line might be. But you have to work through this filter. You you have to answer these questions. If you can do whatever you are doing and your child still know God is number one in this family, have at it. But if you cannot do that, 
then you've got to seriously consider what it is that you're doing. All right, moving right along. Um, This is a relevant one. Politics can be a false god. Just be careful about that. Houses can be false gods. Hobbies can be false gods. Education can be a false god. Travel can be a false god. Children can be false gods. Anything that we place our trust in or give our allegiance to over God himself is a false god. Anything that keeps earth from growing strangely dim to us is a false god. Anything that we value more highly than God and his kingdom is a false god. And what Jesus was saying to the rich ruler and what he says to each of us today, in answer to this question of how we can have eternal life, he says, you can have no other gods before me. I must have your trust, your allegiance. I must be valued above all else. I must be more important to you than all of the appealing things that the world has to offer. And we look at the things we value so much. And we're tempted to become like the rich ruler, sad. Sad. Because the requirement that Jesus sets up for eternal life seems beyond our reach. And friends, it is beyond our reach. We, we cannot get there. And so we're discouraged and disheartened. And to the discouraged and disheartened, Jesus says what is impossible for men is possible with God. You might be here today trusting someone or something other than Jesus. You may have given your allegiance to a false god, maybe to money, maybe to sex, maybe to power. But here's what Jesus makes very clear. Your allegiance can change. You don't have to stay where you are because nothing is impossible with God. You you might feel helpless to change what you've been trusting other than Christ alone. You might have given allegiance to a false God for so long that you just can't imagine ever being any different. But what is impossible for men is possible with God. Your allegiances can change. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to people who had served false gods for so long that their very identity was connected to their worship of those false gods. And here's what he wrote. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. I want you to notice something Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Paul does not do here. He doesn't make a distinction between the sin and the sinner. He he allows that the sinners, that is their identity. That is who they were. No, none of this. You did bad things, but you're not a bad person. No, none of that for the Apostle Paul. No, this is what you were. Adulterers, swindlers, liars, cheats. You know, we do this with our kids all the time. 
you did something bad, but you're not bad. None of that for Paul. The, the identity is sinner. That's, that's who we are. Our, our identity is all wrapped up in our worship of false gods as theirs uh, were as well. But he goes on and says to these people whose identity is, is all wrapped up in their worship of false gods, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You don't have to keep trusting in the false god that you're trusting in. You don't have to miss out on eternal life because of your allegiance to a false god. Your allegiance can change. In the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, you can change. You really can. And here's the good news. Idolaters of all varieties can be saved. The rich can be saved. Those who have worshipped the false god of sex can have their allegiance changed and be saved. Those who have worshipped the false god of career can have their allegiance changed and be saved. Whatever false god has your allegiance, whatever false god is keeping you from eternal life, your allegiance can be changed and you can be saved in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Don't be like this rich ruler who missed out on eternal life for a little bit of money. Just say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow. Yes, I'll sell all. Whatever the all is for you. Yes. Yes, Jesus, I'm willing to get rid of that. I'll reject my false gods and I'll follow you. I'm about to uh, close here, but here's what this all really comes down to. Jesus is teaching us that inheriting eternal life is a matter of the heart. Who or what has your heart? Who owns your heart? Who is your heart trusting in? Who has your heart given allegiance to? If Jesus truly has your heart, You'll inherit eternal life. Peter responded to all of this by saying to Jesus in verse 28, we have left all that we had to follow you. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. He wants your heart. He must be first in your heart. And if he is, eternal life is yours. All of the false gods that you are serving, all of the false gods that I allow myself to serve, the best that they can offer us is temporal pleasure, which is then usually followed by extensive and sometimes lifelong heartache. That's the best. That is the best that they can do. So don't be the person who gives up eternal things for the things of this earth. A a few shiny objects, a few baubles. Nothing, really. Gives it up for nothing. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, you cannot keep your riches. 
You cannot keep the stuff that this world uses to entice us away from God. So give them up now as Jesus requires. Allow your heart's allegiance to transfer from those meaningless things to the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. The Holy Spirit can empower you and wants to and will empower you to say yes to the call of Jesus to change your allegiance. Just open up your heart. Say yes and invite the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Why don't you stand?